Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, history friends, this is among your final chances to go and get tickets for the Intelligent Speech Conference, which is coming to New York on the 29th of June. If you're listening to this after the 29th of June, do not worry. I'm sure we'll be hosting a conference sometime in the future, so keep an eye out for it. However, if you're listening to this episode when it's released, then do go and check out that conference. You're going to find such speakers of such a high caliber as Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, among so many other people. And this is all brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network. The Agora Podcast Network, of course, when diplomacy fails, is part of, and I'm very proud to be part of it, because it is a group of people like me, people who make podcasts, who aren't beholden to any big nasty corporations, and who are interested above all in bringing knowledge and information to you, the listener, in a digestible and enjoyable manner. That's what we're all about in the Agora Podcast Network, and that's why we feel that organizing conferences is the next step in this great direction. If you'd like to support this initiative, then do go and check out this Intelligent Speech Conference. It will hopefully be one among many in the future to come. Other than that, if you'd like to support this podcast, the best way is to just tell somebody about it. Tell people in anywhere that you're active, such as social media, Twitter, talking to people generally and keeping it as general and vague as I can so that it can appeal to as many people as possible, but tell them what Zach Twomley is doing and has been doing for the last seven plus years. He has been delving into historical conflicts and he has been trying to explain them as best as he possibly can. For the most part, people have enjoyed these efforts, but even if you didn't, my own inherent nerdiness would probably compel me to keep going either way. Of course, this support does help, especially the monetary kind of support, because it means I can do this as my job. By going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, not only will you be able to support this podcast monetarily, you'll also ensure that you get an hour of extra content every month. For only $5 a month, this can be yours. And from September, we'll be delving into Poland is not yet lost. But if you aren't all that interested in Poland, or if you'd like to know what we've been doing in the meantime, then a biography series on Jan Sobieski, one of the best and most famous Polish kings, an examination of the year 1956 in the post-Stalin era and of the Suez Crisis in that same year, perhaps those items will whet your appetite. Perhaps you're kind of sick of Versailles. How could you? We're nearly finished. But if you are, then do check those extra series out because they'll give you another window into another fascinating era. And the Suez Crisis in particular, we're also winding down in time for Poland in September, but I've been really, really enjoying it. 
What else? Well, if you want to do something for absolutely free, you should join the burgeoning community we have on Flick. Flick is an app that is free from any social media constraints. It's simply an app that you download from wherever you get your apps from. And then, next thing you know, you join our group, and you'll be able to participate in the discussions that we have going on. Flick is great for people that don't really like Twitter and Facebook, and I understand your feelings. But if you do like Twitter and Facebook, then we're active on those places too. At WDF Podcast, the Facebook page, and Facebook group. Alrighty guys, this episode is a good one, so I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 81. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 81. Last time we honed onto a very important milestone in the narrative of the peace conference, as Germany's government reluctantly announced its acceptance of the Allied Peace Treaty in the late afternoon of the 23rd of June, 1919. After weeks of negotiation, procrastination and consideration of counter-proposals, which caused no shortage of divisions, it seemed that the Big Three had finally reached the end of the line. Surely all that was now left to do was to bask in the glory of their triumph and to await the solemn procession of the Germans to Versailles. In fact, while the major treaty had been granted the German blessing, the period of the 24th to 27th of June was anything but quiet. Though there was certainly a sense that the Allied leaders, particularly Woodrow Wilson, were packing up and preparing to leave, the conference as a whole contained several more challenges and frustrations, which could only be addressed and settled by, you guessed it, negotiation in the Council of Four. In this episode we're going to engage in what is, pretty much, our final examination on the minutes of the Council of Four. To bring you the forgotten answer to the forgotten question of what happened after the Treaty of Versailles was approved, but before it was actually signed. Maybe you didn't even know that question required an answer, but if you're looking for it, this is where you should look. Without any further ado, I'll now take you to this curious, but also depressingly familiar scene. It was clear that the German admiral could be held responsible and punished. It also seemed clear that the German government could be held responsible. But what profit could be derived from the responsibility of the German government was not so clear. The object of the Allies could not be to renew the war, but to obtain some reparation, placing them in the same situation as if the fleet had not been sunk. Here, on the morning of the 24th of June, Woodrow Wilson weighed in on the question which had unexpectedly dominated the final week of the conference. The treaty with Germany had been approved, but there was no note of jubilation to be had. Instead, there was only a continued push to move on to the next issue. Ever since Rear Admiral Reuter had moved to act on the morning of the 21st of June to scuttle as many of Germany's ships as he could, the debate over what to do with him, who was to blame, and what it all meant, had not vanished from the Big Three's agenda. 
Perhaps if the British had not been so involved, then Scapa Flow would have served merely as a footnote in the annals of the Paris Peace Conference. Instead, though, Lloyd George was forced to defend the policy of interning the German ships rather than accepting the surrender of the German sailors, as the Americans had suggested. Yet Lloyd George was also determined to view the incident as an insult and a violation of the armistice, and he was not the only one. Clemenceau was clear that, According to the legal advisers, Germany had violated the armistice. But Clemenceau took the time to make some observations, beginning with the ominous claim that, There was, further, an anticipated violation of the peace conditions, and this must be taken into consideration. If this were all, the stories told by the German admiral, that he believed, on the strength of a newspaper, that the armistice was over, might be alleged in defence of the act. This, however, was merely an instance of German mendacity. There was further evidence of the deliberate intention of the Germans to violate not only the armistice, but the conditions of peace in anticipation. What was this evidence of the German intention to violate the armistice and the peace treaty before it had been signed? Well, Clemenceau honed in on a little-known event in Berlin, where the French flags had been captured by the Germans during the war, and which were due to be returned, but before they could be returned, they had recently been burned in the streets. Clemenceau was adamant that this was unacceptable, and that further evidence of German mendacity was also available, saying, This incident had been sharply felt in France, both by Parliament and people. There was moreover a telegram seized by the Polish authorities, to the effect that an insurrection was to be organised in Upper Silesia. The movement would be disavowed officially, but aided unofficially in every possible manner. It had been hard enough to get the treaty signed, but this evidence showed that there would be even greater difficulty in obtaining its execution. So what did Clemenceau want? Did he have a plan to dissuade the Germans from inciting revolution in Silesia? What did he have in mind to punish them for, for burning the French flags? since this was a dishonour which France could never stomach. Here we see Clemenceau essentially try his luck with an 11th hour scheme, reminiscent of something out of our delegation game. We will examine what he wanted in a sec, but first Clemenceau had to repair the groundwork, and he said, I now formally make a demand that reparation be exacted for the burning of the French flags, an act certainly done by order, like the sinking of the ships. The question arose as to what form the reparation should take. I would not ask for money. Money could only be obtained at the expense of France and her allies. I would take ships if I could get them, but even that was not enough. I wish by a striking act to show that the allies do not mean to tolerate the conduct evidenced by the burning of the flags, the sinking of the ships, and the plot against Poland. It is quite clear that the Germans mean to violate the treaty, which they were to sign in two days. No one who was not deaf and blind to evidence could doubt it. I desire that a military act be accomplished, showing the will of the allies quite clearly not to submit to any fraudulent breach of the treaty by Germany. Clemenceau's plan contained some caveats. He did not want it to precede the signing of the treaty by Germany, so for the moment, all he would ask for was a note which would list to the Germans all the wrongs they had committed. This note, Clemenceau opined, should further state that the Allies were aware of what Germany was plotting in Silesia and that precautions would be taken to prevent the execution of the plot. Clemenceau said that in this note he would keep the Germans guessing and he would not mention what reparation or what precautions would be taken. To the Germans that was all that would be said but to the Allies now he presented his plan for French compromise nothing less than the Allied occupation of the city of Essen. Essen was a core industrial and manufacturing city 
most known as the headquarters of the Krupp Production Company, which had played no small role in the war. Today, in the top ten of Germany's largest cities by population, in 1919 the city was strategically placed on the Ruhr, and thus was near enough to the Allied forces preparing for the occupation of the Rhineland anyway. These factors recommended the city of Essen to Clemenceau, but he outlined additional reasons for the occupation of the city, saying, Essen was still at the present time making armaments. It was the most powerful centre of munition production in Germany. I have no intention of keeping Essen, but only of preventing supplies being made there to munition the attack on Poland. There could, in the nature of the case, be no military opposition to the operation. It would show the Germans quite clearly that their game was up. The Germans would yield and public opinion, which had supported the Allies throughout the war, would be satisfied. Failing this, there was a fear that the Germans would, one by one, get back every concession they had made. This would result in the necessity of remobilizing to engage in definite acts of war. I recognize that it is necessary to act prudently for the time being, in order not to jeopardize the signature of the peace, but it must be made clear to the enemy that Allied will will prevail. In short, what Clemenceau was proposing was an occupation of the city of Essen after the Treaty of Versailles had been signed, to show the Germans that the Allies would stand against them, and to be justified in the realm of compensation and reparation if the Germans made a fuss. Clemenceau was clear on the question of secrecy. He was aware enough of the potential volatility of his plan to note that if word of it got out, it might move the Germans to resist early. Wilson asked that discussion might be postponed on the issue, but for the next few days, Essen was at the forefront of Clemenceau's mind, until eventually, to his credit, he did bow to Allied pressure and gave up on the idea. The Essen plan, as we'll call it, may well have been a knee-jerk reaction to Clemenceau's anger at the inflammatory burning of French flags, but as Wilson and Lloyd George could discern, such an act, and the controversy it would create, was the very last thing the Allies needed. Clemenceau would have to be talked down off his Essen ledge, but with the utmost care. The next morning on the 25th of June, Clemenceau expressed his view again that it was impossible to see the events at Scapa Flow as an isolated act, claiming that The action of the Germans in sinking their ships at Scapa Flow must be considered in connection with the information as to their intentions in Poland, which was confirmed from many quarters. When it was asked whether the Germans might be asked for an explanation about the letter which the Poles had intercepted, which had proclaimed that a German rising in Silesia was imminent, Clemenceau replied that It was useless to ask for explanations, as the Germans would only say that we had falsified the document. Clemenceau wanted to make it clear that he was not examining these details to prolong the war, though, as he insisted, My view was that nothing should be done to delay the signature of peace. All Clemenceau would do today, he said, would be to write to the Germans on the questions of the sinking of the ships and the burning of the flags. The Polish affair, Clemenceau said would grow in a day or two and give ample reasons for action. It was then that Wilson weighed in on the debate, with a view that Clemenceau must have found disappointing. The president said, The more I consider the matter, the more doubtful I feel. On the previous day I had met my four colleagues of the American delegation in order to learn their views. Mr Lansing, who was a very experienced international lawyer, said he seriously doubted whether the German government could be held responsible for something that had happened outside their jurisdiction. If the ships had been sunk on the high seas or in a German port, Mr Lansing's doubts would have been removed, but he very much doubted whether the German government could be held responsible in international law for what happened in Scapa Flow. About the responsibility of the German admiral, 
Mr. Lansing had no doubt. This was a troubling rebuke of Clemenceau and Lloyd George's plan to hold the German government responsible for Scapa Flow, and to view that scuttling as one strike in a series of strikes against Germany in the negotiations. But Wilson wasn't finished. He then proceeded to urge Clemenceau to think realistically and of the bigger picture, saying, The Allied and Associated Powers were about to make a peace. They were dealing with a people of such character that this new act made no difference to our knowledge of it. Difficulties of these kind would often occur in connection with the carrying out of the treaty. The Germans would be tricky and would perhaps often destroy things that they had undertaken to return, alleging that the destruction had been perpetrated by irresponsible persons over whom they had no control. Hence it was necessary to face the issue as to whether if they did so, we were prepared to renew the war. All we could say at present was that the sinking of these ships was a violation of the armistice. If we treated it as a violation of the armistice, it would lead to an outbreak of war. The armistice continued in operation until the ratification of peace by Germany and three of the principal allied and associated powers. Until these ratifications were deposited, the armistice would prevail. To take any military action was to abrogate the armistice and to create a state of war while we are awaiting ratification. It would be a very serious step after we had signed the Treaty of Peace, thus to abrogate the armistice and renew the war. But Clemenceau was not put off by this. He insisted that it would be the Germans, through their actions, and not the Allies, who were only reacting to their insults, that started the war. In addition, per the terms of the armistice, the Allies were entitled to act to get recourse. Lloyd George noted that he did not consider this would entitle them to occupy a city which was left to Germany under the terms of the Treaty of Peace, which had been signed. This was a considerable issue. To act after the 28th of June would surely mean that France was violating the terms of the peace treaty. Even the later occupation of Ruhr, undertaken from 1923, was not as contentious as this, because here it would seem that France was violating the peace treaty before the ink had even dried. Sidney Sanino, representing Italy, took the occasion to weigh in against Clemenceau, arguing that If action were taken after the signing, it would be taken in France as a great recoil and a surrender of victory, and that it would be regarded as an act of violation of the armistice undertaken by the Allies. The response which Clemenceau gave referred specifically to his Essen plan, but in many respects, it could be used as a blueprint of French feelings towards Germany in 1919. As I quote Clemenceau here, for what feels like the umpteenth time throughout this project, I want you to try and imagine the tired, aged French veteran statesman making his case, with urgency and concern lacing his voice. I want you to try and take in what he says, and then ask yourself whether he had a point. The French Premier said, In my view... We are either forced to act or otherwise to find some further means of protest. It was impossible for us to do otherwise. No parliament in France would tolerate inaction. France alone had suffered from this action. Coming to the question of policy, President Wilson said he was not prepared to renew the war. The losses of the French had been greater than those of their allies. In all quarters, demobilisation was demanded. In the lobby on the previous day, many deputies had spoken to me of this. Consequently, I have no desire to reopen the war but there was a great and supreme political interest at stake which prevailed over these considerations. Germany had shown every possible proof of bad faith at every point. She had committed a number of violations of the armistice. Germany was not now in a position to resist, but if the Allies were to wait each time and take no action, the day would come 
when Germany would violate the Treaty of Peace, when the Allies were no longer together, and when the soldiers had been demobilised. Hence, in my view, this was the psychological moment at which to say that we insisted on proper reparation. To take action now would have a very great influence on the future doings of Germany. If this opportunity was lost, I beg President Wilson to remember that the treaty would be in great danger. Think about that sentence for a second. If the Allies were to wait each time and take no action, the day would come when Germany would violate the Treaty of Peace, when the Allies were no longer together, and when the soldiers had all been demobilised. The tragic thing about all these proceedings, of course, is that the day did in fact come when the Allies were no longer together, and after waiting and taking no action, by 1939, the Third Reich was in an apparently unassailable position. Nazi Germany had been appeased and permitted to flout the terms of the Treaty of Versailles so often, and, as Clemenceau had so feared, the end result was the ultimate violation of the treaty, that being war and the defeat of France. Clemenceau probably did sound like a paranoid statesman with this presentation. Germany seemed, to Wilson and Lloyd George at least, beaten and unthreatening compared to other challenges like Bolshevism, national debt or Eastern Europe's patchwork borders. Germany, in fact, could be a useful friend now that her rapacious nature had been confronted. Indeed, Lloyd George's response to Clemenceau's tirade was emblematic of the British view of the situation. In other words, that Germany was not to be too harshly treated, and that France must use caution. He began his response by noting, with typically British understatement, that It was not a question as to whether to allow flagrant violation of the armistice by Germany to pass without protest, or for not exacting punishment or compensation. That was not the point. The real point was that the form of compensation should have some relation to the offence. Hence the question arose as to whether, in compensation for the sinking of the ships, the Allies were entitled to seize a town after the signature of peace. This offence had taken place last Saturday. The treaty would be signed a week later. In the meantime, the treaty contained a precise definition of the areas of occupation. In these circumstances, to occupy another territory would be a little bit tricky. A little bit tricky, indeed. One imagines that if France had stormed into Essen, there would have been uproar. This, as Lloyd George explained, was self-evident, and it would portray the Allies in the worst possible light. The Prime Minister said, If Essen was to be occupied, the Allies ought to do so now. The only reason we did not do so was because we were afraid the Germans would not sign. This is admitted in these conversations, and this was the reason why it was not proposed to tell them. At the present time, the whole feeling of the world was against Germany and their action at Scapa Flow, and more especially in burning the French flags, all that accentuated this feeling. The burning of the flags was felt to be a wanton insult, but to get the Germans to sign, knowing perfectly well that, after their signature, we did not intend to adhere to the letter of the treaty, but proposed to advance further into Germany, would outrage the sense of decent people. Lloyd George then saw fit to compare the dispositions of the British and French people. The position of British public opinion was different from that of the French, the Prime Minister noted, adding that the Germans were old enemies of the French and were the enemies of the British for the first time. This must play a role in how the Allies proceeded, for the populations of the different states couldn't be... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sold on this seizure of Essen once peace had been assigned, Lloyd George reminded his peers that although British public opinion had been solid to march to Berlin if the Germans would not sign, nevertheless, it must not be forgotten that there was some feeling against the treaty, including a considerable feeling amongst intellectuals. Finally, Lloyd George exclaimed what he wanted to avoid was causing a feeling that the Allies were not exacting justice, but were trampling on the fallen foe. Hence, I beg my colleagues not to advance into Germany after peace had been signed. It is no wonder that Lloyd George acquired the reputation among the Big Three as something of a softy when it came to the German peace terms. Here he seemed more concerned with how the actions of the Essen plan would appear to outside opinion than whether it was actually necessary under the circumstances. We cannot know what kind of impression the act would have made in Germany, or whether it genuinely would have anticipated the kind of defiance which the Weimar Republic later exhibited. Perhaps the German government might even have made a supreme effort to pay off its reparations. Perhaps it would have demonstrated Allied seriousness to the Germans, and removed any need for the later Ruhr occupation, which proved such fodder for outraged German nationalists. Yet we should also bear in mind the qualification for the withdrawal from Essen which Clemenceau proposed if his plan did go ahead. Once the German threat to Silesia was neutralised, he claimed, Essen would be returned. In fact, the status of Upper Silesia would be somewhat clouded over the next few years, thanks in part to the eruption of the Polish-Soviet War later in 1919 and the intensification of violence in Upper Silesia thereafter. Not until the mid-1920s was the situation truly returned to some semblance of calm. Did this mean that Clemenceau's forces would not have withdrawn from Essen until that point? While we cannot know how events would have proceeded, Lloyd George was sure about one thing. If France acted alone and occupied Essen, nothing could be more fatal. Furthermore, Lloyd George remarked that, I do not anticipate real trouble with Germany for at least ten years. Clemenceau said he thought Lloyd George was wrong and the trouble from the Germans might come at once. In reply, Lloyd George said that even if trouble from Germany were to come in five years, it was just as important that the Allies should hold together, and that the Essen plan would jeopardise this solidarity. At this, Clemenceau withdrew for a moment to talk to his advisers in some depth, 
specifically on the question of international law. Meanwhile, Wilson claimed that only through the League of Nations could Germany's disregard for the Treaty of Versailles be answered. This anticipated the powerlessness of that institution to act once Germany did begin its violations. While he was clear that the League would preserve the treaty, Wilson at no point explained how this new League might actually achieve this end. The Essen plan was not a concern merely of the Council of Four, though, expressed the previous day on the 24th of June. It had also come to Edward House's attention, and much like the President, House was certain that the whole venture was a bad idea, and he explained his position thusly. General Tasker Howard Bliss and I took the lead against such action. My advice was to not even send a protest, much less consent to the occupation of Essen. The great thing was to have the treaty signed. After that was done, if it was thought wise, a protest might be sent to Germany concerning the two incidents mentioned, preferably, though, laying the blame to the old government and expressing a hope that the new government would carry out in good faith the terms of the treaty. My opinion was there would be lawless acts of this nature for some months, but after that, Germany would get down to a real understanding of the situation and try to fulfil her obligations, so far as she was able. This was a very generous approach to take, effectively giving the Weimar Republic the benefit of the doubt when it came to such offences, and bearing in mind the central goal of bringing the Germans to sign, rather than aggravating them with additional demands. House was poised for a showdown with Clemenceau in this regard, but would have been relieved to note the events that took place the following day. As we noted on the 25th of June, these conversations that we've just covered a few minutes ago, Clemenceau withdrew from the room to discuss the matter with some experts. That had given Wilson the chance to wax lyrical about the wonders of the mysterious League of Nations, but when Clemenceau returned to the Council of Four, it was with a very different message. Clemenceau announced, essentially, that he had been advised that the Essen plan would reignite the war, and that therefore he would let this drop, as the minutes put him saying, although he still believed that it was the best thing to do, and that this fact would be especially decisive on the Polish question. It was a most surprising climb down from the Essen ledge, which Clemenceau had only begun leaning over the previous day. Diplomacy, so it seemed, had triumphed in the face of this danger. Whether or not his mind had truly been changed, whether he was searching for concessions in return, or whether it was a mixture of both, Clemenceau, Lloyd George and Wilson spent the remainder of the meeting developing the language of the note which would be sent to the Germans regarding the events of Scapa Flow, the burning of the French flags, and the agitation of the Poles in Upper Silesia. The concluding Allied note on these events read as follows. The fact of sinking the German fleet not only constitutes by itself a breach of the armistice, but the burning of the French flags in Berlin taken in conjunction with it constitutes a deliberate and systematic breach of the Articles of the Treaty of Peace. These articles are ineffective breach of the terms of the treaty and anticipation, and inevitably create an impression that shakes the confidence of the Allied and Associated Powers in the good faith of the Germans, and makes it necessary to warn them of the consequences. It was a remarkably stern and strong message of warning to the Germans not to push the Allied buttons, but would it serve as the last word on these series of perceived outrages? That remained to be seen, as there remained several days left before the Germans actually arrived, and there was time enough for diplomacy to fail. That afternoon on the 25th of June, the three Allied leaders talked of ratifying the peace treaty, with Wilson especially eager to return home as soon as was possible. It was already noted in the minutes that he would return to the United States on the evening of the 28th, 
a few hours after the treaty had been signed. Sonino claimed that while the new government would be responsible in Rome, he was confident it would ratify the treaty within a fortnight. The conditions of the German blockade were discussed, a commission for implementing the German peace treaty was imagined, Russia was considered, as Kolchak had recently suffered a setback, the long-suffering Chinese were criticised for refusing to sign the treaty, no more money could be spared for the Baltic states, it was said, as Latvians and Estonians had taken matters into their own hands. The future of Syria was also debated, and the question of who would have a mandate for Turkey was also considered. The agenda was long in the afternoon of the 25th of June, but the Big Three did not spend much actual time on any of the issues up for debate. In stark contrast to their previous behaviour, the Big Three seemed eager to move quickly onto each new subject, which leaves us with some fascinating throwaway comments on different questions. What was to be done about the Kaiser, then in exile in the Netherlands? Wilson was adamant that, the hour was approaching when some demand would have to be made to Holland in regard to the surrender of the Kaiser. The President was anxious that the demand should be made in such a form as would relieve Holland of any appearance of breach of hospitality. Lloyd George then gave his two cents and pointed out that a new principle was involved in this treaty. The Prime Minister claimed that a great crime had been perpetrated against the nations of the world it had taken five years to bring this question to fruition, and the Allies could not afford to allow Holland to stand in the way. Wilson agreed that Holland was morally obliged to surrender the Kaiser, but he wished to make it as easy for her as possible. Clemenceau, for his part, said he would be surprised if the Netherlands objected. As we know, though, the Netherlands did object, and the Kaiser was never brought to justice as the Allies intended. A good thing, too, since, to my mind, Kaiser Wilhelm II was only as guilty as any other statesman for facilitating the outbreak of the war. To publicly prosecute a head of state was also not the dumb thing in 1919. This demand, expressed several months before and during the British general election in December 1918, would never be answered and would eventually wither away into obscurity, much like the Kaiser himself who died in 1941, three weeks before the Nazis launched their murderous undertaking against the Soviet Union. The next day, on Thursday the 26th of June, 48 hours away from signing, and the question of who in the German delegation would sign became paramount. The Allies recorded that Hermann Müller, the new German foreign minister, would be first and foremost in the German delegation sent to sign, and that the postmaster general and probably the Prussian National Assembly chairman would also accompany him. The Allies don't seem to have realised how unpopular the act was in Germany and how desperately the Chancellor Bauer government had had to work to persuade even Mueller to sign. In fact, the German cabinet had met on the morning of the 26th of June and had discussed who would go. Mueller, after some persuasion, declared that as foreign minister he would accept the burden and take the fall, essentially, for the act of signing. As it happened, Neither the Postmaster General nor the Prussian National Assembly Chairman, in other words, those two figures who the Allies predicted would accompany Mueller, actually agreed to go to Paris. Instead, the duty fell to Dr. Johann Bell, a very reluctant statesman if there ever was one. The records of the debate in the German cabinet that afternoon on the 26th illuminate Dr. Bell's obviously conflicted loyalties. As Colonial Minister, his official title, he would be required to go to Versailles and sign the document which removed Germany's colonies. It would be career suicide, and possibly actual suicide as well, 
he will be deemed the most unsuccessful colonial secretary in history by this action. The historian Alma Lukau revealed the tense final moments which led to the successful persuasion of the reluctant colonial minister. Twice after that, Minister Bell was urged by telephone to accept and to make the great sacrifice of being a co-signer. Both the cabinet and President Ebert pleaded with him because the Allies were demanding the immediate appointment of the signatories and because, therefore, a state of greatest emergency for the nation and fatherland existed. In the credentials, his title of Colonial Secretary would be changed to Federal Minister. So the title would be altered, but the guilt would surely still be his. Bell wished to make it plain why he was going to Versailles in the first place, through a memorandum co-signed by Hermann Müller, who felt similarly entrapped, but also duty-bound to go. The memo read, Upon the unanimous request of the Cabinet, Ministers Hermann Müller and Dr. Bell have decided to sign the Treaty of Versailles. They believe it to be impossible to avoid this last and, personally, most difficult sacrifice, made necessary by the terrible suffering which would result from a failure to sign. Back in Paris, away from these regretful statesmen, the Big Three continued to discuss their options and plans for the final plenary conference where they would all be present on Saturday the 28th. Would Clemenceau make a speech? The French Premier indicated he would not. There would be no presentation, as had been given to Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau on the 7th of May. The Germans would sign, and that would be that. What about a victory parade? Clemenceau noted that preparations were being made on Bastille Day, the 14th of July, for a parade down the Champs-Élysées and under the Arc de Triomphe to capture the spirit of Allied unity and victory. The British and American leaders noted that they would make sufficient preparations. Meanwhile, it was noted that the Crown Prince of Germany had been spotted hightailing it out of Holland, a junior army officer in tow. This bit of news sent the Allies into a tizzy. They quickly wrote up a request to the Dutch neither the Crown Prince nor the Kaiser be permitted to leave their Dutch exile. Clemenceau was adamant that this was an attempt by Wilhelm to upset the peace. If the Crown Prince reached Germany, then the whole peace process could be undone. In addition to other minor matters, most of which were kicked down the road, the Allies demanded that Bailakun's Hungary could be relieved of its blockade once evidence had been received of their withdrawal from their neighbours. In fact, at this point, Bailakun was enjoying the high point of his fortunes and he had no intention of pulling back just yet, having southern Slovakia in the middle of June and having established a puppet Soviet republic there. That afternoon on the 26th of June, the madness continued. It was as though the Big Three had learned nothing at all. Now that the Italian foreign minister was absent, there was no one to confront their echo chamber. While discussing the Turks and pondering whether they should be allowed to attend the ceremony at Versailles, discussion then turned to the mandate over Turkey. Unfortunately, Clemenceau said, the United States seemed less than eager to take Turkey or Constantinople under its wing as a mandate. Without a hint of shame, Wilson claimed that this was because the Italians had landed in Asia Minor and had muddled the whole situation up. This despite the fact that Wilson knew full well a mandate over the entirety of Turkey would never have been accepted by the isolationist-leaning Congress. Lloyd George then weighed in, exaggerating for full effect with the claim that the Italian soldiers, remember, representing a force barely 1,000 men strong, were advancing straight before them and seizing in the interior everything that suited them. Great Britain had no ambition in this region, but I fear what the effect might be in Muslim countries. 
So yes, there was at least one place in the world where Lloyd George was not interested in laying claim to, though his pronouncements regarding Italy were utterly bogus and without proof. Italy alone, Lloyd George continued, had not demobilised. And, the Prime Minister added, she was afraid to do so out of fear of internal disorder. She had her troops and she was sending them to Asia Minor, to the Caucasus, and wherever she wished. Clemenceau agreed, pointing to the situation of Fiume, noting that, the town was surrounded by barbed wire. This was a state of war. The French Premier proclaimed, adding for full effect, was this the intention of the Treaty of London? The Italians were breaking their word there and everywhere else. When Clemenceau then added that the new Italian government had asked for a strip of territory near Nice, Lloyd George concluded the meeting by proclaiming, This is madness. The days may have gone by, but one thing that did not change was the Big Three's propensity for Italian bashing, especially when the Italians were not actually there to answer the challenge. As they bashed the Italians and congratulated themselves on the German treaty, members of their own delegations privately expressed their discontent. There was little point in mounting any more official protests now. General Tasker Bliss of the American delegation expressed his final views on the treaty that day, on Thursday the 26th of June, in a letter to his cousin, writing, You can imagine that I may have decided differences of opinion as to the desirability of some of the things that have been done here, but you will also understand that an ordinary sense of loyalty prevents me from giving utterance to any criticism. Consequently, I have been afraid to write to my political friends an explanation of things that have been done, which, could I have done so, would have given them, I think, a clearer idea as to the exact facts, and I have not liked to do it for fear of being misunderstood when I really thought that I was making things clear. A treaty in which 25 or 30 different nations are concerned, and a considerable number of them concerned to a vital degree, cannot possibly be satisfactory to all of them. But the fact that it is very unsatisfactory to our enemies makes me think that, after all, it is about as good as could be expected. About as good as could be expected was hardly the kind of line to inspire confidence, nor was it much of a recommendation for the end result of a near six-month peacemaking process, let alone a war lasting four years and more. Yet perhaps it was too late now to worry about such things. The entire American delegation, of the five men and the minor players, were photographed on the afternoon of the 26th of June at the official HQ of the United States in Paris for the last six months, the Hotel Creon. This exercise provided us with the grey and black images, which you can now find if you search for the US delegation in the peace conference. It serves as a reminder of what six months of diplomacy can do to a statesman. Also, on the morning of the 26th, Bliss had gone with House to view the preparations for the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, where the Germans would soon be arriving. House did not like what he saw in this Hall of Mirrors. The French, House wrote in his diary, are decorating everywhere and trying to make it an elaborate ceremony. They will make us ridiculous if they are not careful, because the Germans may send only one man to sign, and that man is of no consequence. Indeed, the men Germany sent were men with official titles, certainly, but unofficially, the best men in Germany had long since left the scene, or, as was the case with President Ebert, had absolutely no intention of making themselves a martyr for the Weimar Republic, which they supposedly served. The next day, Friday the 27th of June, must have been a bittersweet day for all involved. For Lloyd George, Wilson, House and many others, 
It was the last full day of the conference, before the next day was occupied with the arrival of the Germans and their symbolic signatures. House typically opened his diary with a note on precisely how popular he was, writing, This has been a trying day because so many people have come in to say goodbye since I am leaving on Sunday. A great number are also leaving with the President on Saturday night. Someone who would not be so lucky to escape was Harold Nicholson, who would stay on in Paris for some time. There was new role in the League of Nations, which so captivated him, also awaited at Geneva. I long to get away from this place, where improvisations flit over the mists of ignorance like dragonflies above a marsh, Nicholson had remarked poetically when he learned of the last-minute decision of the new German government to sign on the dotted line. Before this had been announced, Nicholson was blistering in his expressions on who was to blame. He had written on the 18th of June that The definite pessimists think they will do a carroly, hand over power to the Bolsheviks, join up with the Russians and Magyars, and present us with a red Middle Europa. If the Germans do this, it will be our fault for not crushing Bolshevism in Hungary when it would still have been easy to do so. Also, for insisting on the absurd reparations clauses, Lord Sumner and Cunliffe, Tweedledum and Tweedledee, must be feeling especially uneasy. Indeed, Lord Sumner and Cunliffe, the two British officials in charge of quantifying the amount of items Germany would be responsible for paying, must have wondered whether the nightmarish scenario imagined by Nicholson would in fact take shape. Fortunately for these two men, German statesmen were made of stronger stuff than their Hungarian counterparts, and German society remained more resolute in the face of the perceived Russian ideology, which gained few converts after the suppression of the Spartacists in January and the adventures of the Freikorps after that. The 27th of June contained no shortage of discussions, but virtually none of these focused upon Germany itself, so they're mostly unimportant to us. Lloyd George wanted to talk about reparations. The Turks, it was declared, would be allowed to go home, Germany's merchant fleet was divided, and the wording of the guarantee which Britain and the United States gave to French security was finalised. But by and large, there was little indication that their work was about to culminate the next day. That was because, to be more precise, only a select amount of their work would culminate on the 28th of June. The Treaty of Versailles represented only one pillar of the Allied peacemaking activities, though it had, of course, been the most important of these pillars. Indeed, that the show would go on was confirmed by Wilson in the afternoon of the 27th of June, when he made the useful note that after he and Lloyd George had left, the main work of the conference would revert to the Council of Ten at the Quai d'Orsay. Lloyd George agreed to this, as did Clemenceau, and the minutes record the quintessential passing of the diplomatic torch, as it was made official that on the departure of President Wilson and Lloyd George, the Council of Ten should be re-established at the Quai d'Orsay as the Supreme Council of the Allied and Associated Powers in the Peace Conference. After making their contribution to the cause of world peace, and bringing the most ruinous war in history to an end, at least with the major participant in that war, the Big Three evidently believed that their work was done. It was time to hand the baton onto other figures, now that the main event had been hosted. Indeed, the groundwork had been prepared for the before and the after, but it remained to host that seismic event in the conference. The final, most important step towards peace remained to be taken, but it was to prove the most controversial, bittersweet and treacherous step of all.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.